This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. This episode features discussions of torture and death that some may find offensive. Listener discretion is advised, especially for children under 13. In November of 1987, South Korea was preparing to host the Olympic Games in Seoul the following summer. North Korea, its communist neighbor, knew the Games would be a publicity coup for their enemy if they proceeded. On November 29th, two North Korean agents posing as Japanese tourists boarded a South Korean airliner bound for Seoul with a layover in Abu Dhabi. The alleged father and daughter got off the plane on the layover and disappeared into the city. Several hours later, the Korean jet exploded in midair, killing all 115 souls on board. The explosion was caused by a suitcase bomb placed in an overhead compartment. The so-called tourists were traced to Bahrain, where they were surrounded by police. The older man took a cyanide capsule and died, but the young female agent couldn't get the pill down before she was subdued and arrested. Under interrogation, the woman explained that the bombing was supposed to look like an act of domestic terrorism. The plan looked like an attempt by Kim Il-sung to weaken his enemy's image and show the superiority of communism. But then the young agent revealed that the plan hadn't been the great leaders. The order to bomb the airliner had come directly from his son, Kim Jong-il. A new leader was on the rise in North Korea. Welcome to Dictators, a ParCast original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. On this show, we're going deep into the minds of some of history's most hated despots. This season, we'll be looking at the Kim family's unique communist dynasty in North Korea. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. To stream Dictators for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Dictators in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. 
let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Today, we're diving into the rise of North Korean dictator Kim Jong-il, the son of Kim Il-sung. We'll see how the mysterious Jong-il's naturally artistic and sensitive nature was corrupted by power in the wake of his father's dynastic handoff. Next week, we'll explore Kim Jong-il's increasingly erratic behavior in his later years and the slow decline of his health. We'll also hear how the dear leader's fading health coincided with a massive exodus of defectors from North Korea, each of whom brought tragic stories of a communist nation approaching ruin. With the Kim family, there are two sides to every story. First is the truth, which are the facts about events as they occurred without any spin or opinion. But then there's the narrative. This is the fantastic epic woven around the Kim family by their propaganda and carefully reproduced in so-called official documents. It is the only version of the story that North Korean citizens ever hear. Much of Kim Il-sung's life and reign was documented by outside sources before and during the Korean War. The facts and timeline, otherwise known as the truth, are well known up to the founding of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, or DPRK, in 1948. But after 1948, the DPRK disappeared behind an iron curtain of secrecy. Kim Il-sung's cult of personality and rigid policies ensured that very little information about his country was revealed to the outside world. This included the birth of his son, Kim Jong-il, in Siberia in 1941. Or was it 1942? Official North Korean biographies claim that Jong-il was born within Korea, in one of his father's guerrilla camps on February 16, 1942. Some of these biographies alternatively assert, though without any evidence, that he was born under a double rainbow on the country's legendary Mount Pektu. Regardless of his actual birth date and location, Jong-il spent the first years of his life among guerrilla soldiers in Vietskoya within the former Soviet Union. His father was the camp commander at the time, not yet the great leader of the Glorious Republic, but an ordinary rebel general. And his mother was a guerrilla fighter named Zhang Suk. She was short with dark, alluring eyes. Kim Il-sung, who himself was tall and handsome, described her as a devoted comrade and a considerate woman who saved his life multiple times. However, Jong Il inherited few of his parents' physical traits. He was short and pudgy his entire life and allegedly quite shy. His parents were busy fighting the Japanese during the 1940s, and Jong Il often found himself in the care of other women in the camp. The communal nature of his upbringing exposed Jong-il to the harsh realities of the war around him, even if he couldn't understand the politics behind it. He saw wounded and volatile soldiers, as well as rationed food and medical supplies. Guerrilla life was not comfortable. But that didn't mean he didn't have entertainment. The toddling Jong-il would carry a wooden rifle and march alongside the guerrillas and play at shooting into the trees. He spoke often of wanting to fight the Japanese with a real gun. Little Jong-il was known as Yura, a Russian nickname. 
Between skirmishes, the soldiers would take him to the nearby Amur River and show him the fishing boats and the flocks of birds on their migrations. Zhang Il was known as a precocious and curious child. And soon he wasn't alone. His parents had two more children, a younger brother named Man Il and a sister named Kyung Hee. The family returned to Korea in 1945 after the war. With the support of the Soviets, Kim Il-sung was installed as the communist leader of occupied North Korea and moved into an official residence in Pyongyang in 1947. Then tragedy struck the Kim family that year. One summer afternoon, five-year-old Kim Jong-il was playing near a pond with his brother Man-il, who was just three years old. Somehow, little Man-il fell into the water. Jong-il watched as his little brother drowned. Though he never spoke about it, and the death of Man-il is largely ignored in the official DPRK narratives, his younger brother's death had a profound effect on young Jong-il. Unfortunately, this tragedy would not be the only one in Jong-il's early life. In 1949, just two years after his brother's death, Jong-il's mother died during an ectopic birth. Her death is well recorded in North Korea, and young Kim Jong-il is said to have wept over his mother's body in her coffin. When several of the women soldiers at the funeral tried to comfort Jong-il, his father intervened. Leave him alone, he said. Tomorrow, he will have no mother anymore with whom to cry. From that day on, Kim Jong-il was his father's faithful son. It was the two of them against the world. In June 1950, a year after his wife's death, Kim Il-sung invaded South Korea, sparking the Korean War. The tide turned quickly against the North, and Jong-il was sent with his sister to wait out the war in China. When the armistice was signed three years later, Zhang Il returned to a DPRK that was broken and defeated. He also returned to a divided family. Kim Il-sung remarried sometime during the war, likely back in 1951 when Zhang Il was nine years old. Il-sung's new wife bore him three more children, two boys and one girl. Zhang Il never accepted his half-brothers. He missed the undivided attention his father had placed on him. So he projected this angst on his teachers at the number four Pyongyang Elementary School. As a student, Zhang Il excelled at two things, mathematics and tormenting his teachers. One of them made a list of best practices for keeping Zhang Il happy, including proper grooming, maintaining eye contact, and all his favorite foods according to the season. By the time he reached Namsan Senior High School in 1958, Zhang Il was quite consciously following in his father's footsteps. He was a member of the Democratic Youth League, and he went on tours of local construction sites and factories. He would always lend a hand in the work during these visits, which demonstrated that Zhang Il was not above any other communist citizens. Zhang Il's biographies still tell of his 1961 visit to a textile factory where he took a turn at one of the machines and noticed how stiff it seemed. He asked the operator if it had been oiled, and the worker said yes. Zhang Il inspected the machine carefully, and with an expert eye, found a spot the worker had missed. The machine suddenly worked like new. 
Again, the official narrative clouds the truth. There is no evidence of this story ever occurring. The actual truth is simple. Zhang Il was rushed through university with private tutors for every subject. As the son of the great leader, he received blatantly preferential treatment, which was spun into stories of his incredible intelligence and ability. Zhang Il graduated from university in May 1964, and the young man was immediately given a role in his father's government, specifically the Central Committee's Department of Organization. In that role, Zhang Il proved his loyalty to family and party by exposing several of his colleagues as vacillating elements. This supposed lack of loyalty led to a purge of the department later that year. Every step of Zhang Il's education and career seemed to imply that he was the de facto choice to succeed his father. Central Committee officials reported hearing that Zhang Il was next in line as early as 1974. But Zhang Il himself refused to speak of succession. There was to be no talk of replacing Kim Il-sung, ever. One specific violent example demonstrated this unspoken rule of North Korean politics. The unconfirmed narrative suggests that in the early 1970s, Kim Jong-il met with a high-ranking Communist Party official in Pyongyang. The official took the chance to flatter the great leader's son and suggested that he should be declared the successor for whenever his father passed on. Jong-il sat for a moment in stunned silence. The party official probably believed his compliment was so flattering it had left him speechless. Instead, Zhang Il pulled his pistol and shot the official dead on the spot. Even if this story is apocryphal, the moral is obvious. Zhang Il allowed no discussion of anyone taking his father's place, including himself. At the time, Zhang Il really had no desire to take over for his father. He was already a senior government official living a spoiled life. He had endless supplies of wine and cognac, as well as a massive collection of Western films, all of which were prohibited to ordinary citizens. He was living a life of hypocrisy under his father's protection. If Zhang Il wanted to maintain his position and his lifestyle, he needed to support his father no matter what. Besides, Kim Jong-il was too focused on other tasks to worry about succession, like building movie studios, throwing lavish parties, and plotting a kidnapping. Coming up, Kim Jong-il builds a cinematic empire in a way only he could. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. By the early 1970s, Kim Jong-il was experiencing a meteoric rise within the Communist Party ranks. While his father was busy touring his communist utopia on propaganda campaigns, Jong-il was trusted to run the administrative side of the government. 
On the side, Kim Jong-il still had time for other pursuits, like filmmaking. A lifelong movie buff, he opened up studios to make propaganda films. He personally oversaw the production of epic revolutionary operas that glorified the Juche ideology. To Jong-il, this was more than propaganda. It was art. He even published a treatise on film theory called On the Art of the Cinema. And his love for movies would morph into a different kind of love. Sometime in the late 60s, Kim met a young actress named Song Hae-rim. She was already famous on both sides of the Korean demarcation line, but she was trapped in an unhappy marriage. Seeing an opportunity to improve her fortunes, she divorced her husband and started dating Kim Jong-il. Jong-il kept the affair a strict secret. The two lovers spent clandestine nights together, and Jong-il began visiting the studios where Hae-rim was filming almost every other day. As the affair grew, so did Jong-il's contribution to the film world. He wrote songs and scenes for several propaganda musicals like a communist Billy Wilder. His love for cinema melded beautifully with his love for Song Hae-rim. And a deep sensitivity was revealed in the young dictator-to-be. Soon the affair also produced a son. Kim Jong-nam was born in 1971, but his existence was largely kept secret including from Kim Il-sung. Amid the few family members who knew about the birth, it once again raised questions about succession. Was a budding monarchy growing in North Korea? As communist revolutionaries dedicated to returning power to the workers, the idea of hereditary succession was antithetical to their cause. Even the Soviets and Chinese communists abhorred the idea. For years, the North Korean Dictionary of Political Terminologies unequivocally stated that dynastic succession was a product of slave societies adopted by feudal lords as a means to perpetuate dictatorial rule. However, that definition was removed in the 1972 edition of the North Korean Dictionary. The tide was shifting among the party as Kim Il-sung grew more amenable to the idea of a dynasty. He might have been a Stalinist at heart, but he claimed this shift was inspired by the chaotic line of succession in the Soviet Union. After Stalin's death, the power vacuum in Soviet politics led to the rise of Nikita Khrushchev, a harsh critic of Stalin. Kim Il-sung had rooted North Korea's formation in Stalinism, and in his memoirs, he noted that Khrushchev's criticisms of the former dictator were the moment things began to go astray. Kim Il-sung believed that if a new leader did not support the legacy of his predecessor, the Revolutionary Party would weaken and collapse. Whoever succeeded him would need to be loyal not only to the communist ideology, but to him. And in the early 1970s, there appeared to be no better candidate than Kim Il-sung's loyal and active son. By 1973, Kim Jong-il was a secretary in the Central Committee of the Communist Party. He was referred to by the North Korean media as the party's center, as though he had become the embodiment of communist ideals in the DPRK. Kim Jong-il had also fully committed to his father's concept of Juche, or national self-reliance. 
In a 1973 speech, he even went so far as to brand the country's national ideology as Kim Il-sung-ism. To honor his father as the nation's guiding star, Zhang Il ordered the construction of lavish monuments and buildings named for the great leader. He cemented his loyalty with constant affection and care for Kim Il-sung, who was still remarkably healthy. But Kim Jong-il was taking no chances with his future. He was slyly positioning himself as his father's right-hand man. And his tactics were working. Jong-il was now firmly entrenched as his father's natural successor. It was only a matter of time before the decision would be made official and announced publicly. In the meantime, this secure position gave Jong-il even more freedom to pursue his favorite pastime filmmaking. Throughout the 1970s, he tried to define himself as not just a propaganda master, but as an auteur. He grew so obsessed with cinematic art that in 1977, he ordered the kidnapping of one of South Korea's most lauded film directors, Shin Sang-ok. At the time, Shin's reputation in South Korea was in tatters. He had openly complained about censorship and bribery in the government, and they had retaliated by forcing the closure of his film studio. Shin's open dissent against the South led Kim Jong-il to believe the director might be willing to defect to the North. But he couldn't just ask Shin Sang-ok directly. Instead, he planned to kidnap Shin's ex-wife, Choi En-hee. Choi was a star of South Korean cinema, and having an actress like her among North Korean's stable of talent would be a boon to the industry on its own. And it might coerce Shin to cooperate. The plan was initiated in the fall of 1977 when a North Korean agent visited Choi and offered her the chance of a lifetime. He claimed to run a movie studio in Hong Kong and inquired if Choi would be interested in producing films there. He went one step further and offered her a script to direct, which came with a hefty paycheck. Unable to resist, Choi agreed to visit the studio in January 1978. When she arrived in Hong Kong, the agent took her on a whirlwind tour of the city and introduced her to several so-called fans. It was only when the tour ended on a desolate beach that Choi realized something was wrong. A small motorboat with four men was waiting for her. They grabbed her, threw her into the boat, and stuck a needle in her. When Choi awoke, she found herself aboard a freighter headed for the North Korean port of Nampo. In her small padlocked stateroom, an enormous portrait of Kim Il-sung stared down at her. Eight days later, the freighter pulled into port and Choi was met at the dock by none other than the great leader's son himself, Kim Jong-il. The short, future dictator, who stood only five foot three, looked up at her and offered his hand. Then he invited her to join him in the long black limousine waiting nearby for the ride to Pyongyang. When they reached the city, Jong-il relished pointing out the notable sights and monuments. Choi said later, Kim Jong-il was as happy as a general making a triumphant entrance into the capital. Jong-il's delusions of grandeur were encouraged by the cult of personality prevalent in the monuments, portraits, and flags that adorned the buildings. Everything was about Kim Il-sung, 
And as the leader's son, Kim Jong-il clearly had the power to do anything he wanted without fear of reprisal. This included kidnapping Shin Sang-ok six months later. In a similar fashion to Choi's kidnapping, agents nabbed him in Hong Kong and brought him to North Korea. But unlike his ex-wife Choi, who had accepted her situation with sadness and resignation, Shin fought back. Kim Jong-il was forced to keep him under perpetual guard. When he tried to escape, the dictator threw him in a labor camp. With Shin Sang-ok refusing to work, Jong-il's plan to bolster the North Korean film industry was failing. Still, the DPRK film studios cranked out plenty of mediocre propaganda films, which aided Jong-il's position in the eyes of his father and the citizens. In 1980, Kim Il-sung finally decided to make his son's inheritance official. A short announcement was made at a congress of the entire DPRK leadership. Kim Jong-il was to be promoted to the Central Committee and the Military Commission. Even with this announcement, the dynamics within the newly established dynasty were largely unchanged. Kim Il-sung was still healthy and completely involved with the day-to-day -day concerns of his government. Kim Jong-il still had a long wait before he took the communist throne. So he simply continued with life as he knew it. Jong-il had all the resources of the nation at his disposal. He threw lavish parties complete with endless Hennessy cognac, his personal favorite. During his peak years of consumption, Jong-il was spending 700,000 British pounds a year on the liquor, another extravagance that other North Koreans were prohibited from enjoying. Nearly every Friday night in the early 1980s, there was a party in Pyongyang organized by Jong-il, complete with live music, movies, and mahjong at one of his many villas. Choi In-hee, the kidnapped South Korean actress, was a frequent guest at these soirees. And at one party in 1983, another guest made a surprise entrance. It was the director, Shin Sang-ok, newly released from the labor camp after his three-year sentence. Kim Jong-il watched the formerly married couple's reunion with delight, imploring them, well, go ahead and hug each other. Why are you just standing there? The couple hugged and the room broke into applause. Then Jong-il said, all right, stop hugging and come over here. The diminutive dictator then announced that Shin had agreed to be his official film advisor. He also announced that the former couple would have a wedding ceremony on April 15th, the birthday of great leader Il-sung. Choi and Shin were stunned. This was the first they'd heard of their remarriage. Then to appease Shin, Kim assured him, Mr. Shin, please forgive the dramatics. No one ever laid a hand on Madame Choi. Now I send her back to you exactly as she was. We communists, are pure. Shin was alarmed at the turn of events, but in that moment, he had an insight into Kim Jong-il's motivations. He later explained that, Jong-il thinks that anyone who lives in a capitalist country can be satisfied if they have enough money. He believed that with all the material support he was providing us, we would be happy. In North Korea, the communist revolution justified everything, even kidnapping. 
but the prevalence of this belief and of Kim Jong-il's own propaganda left him shockingly naive about the actual appeal of communism. Jong-il was so certain that the two captive filmmakers would embrace their noble task that he granted them exceptional levels of freedom. He gave them a film budget of $2 million, the freedom to travel, and official DPRK passports. While they did produce the movies Kim Jong-il wanted, Choi and Shin were constantly plotting their escape. Finally, eight years after Choi's kidnapping, they got their chance. On a trip to Europe in 1986, the couple slipped away from their communist bodyguards and fled to the U.S. Embassy in Vienna. Kim Jong-il's grand cinematic ambition had been robbed of its two prime architects. In the coming years, the escaped filmmakers' revelations about the communist state brought the world more questions than answers. One of the most significant question marks surrounded their film budget and Kim Jong-il's expensive tastes. The budding director made no secret of his family's staggering wealth. But how did they amass such wealth in an ardently communist country? The source of that money went by a simple name, Division 39. This was the section of the Communist Party that was devoted to capitalism. Nobody is certain when it was founded or the specifics of its inner workings. But Division 39 is essentially a slush fund created to support Kim Jong-il's ambitions and frivolities. And he oversaw many of the operations personally. Division 39 was divided into two financial structures. The first was fronted by a corporation called the Daesong Group. This company owned banks and other legitimate businesses around the world, including ginseng exporters, seafood fisheries, and gold mines. The second, darker structure was the Illicit Projects Division, which oversaw arms dealing, drug smuggling, and massive counterfeiting operations. Division 39 was responsible for heroin and methamphetamine trafficking that netted $500 million a year for Kim Jong-il. Somewhere between 10 and 17,000 acres of farmland in North Korea is dedicated to poppy fields, the origin plant of opium and heroin. Time magazine estimated in 2003 that the street value of North Korea's heroin in Japan alone was as high as $300 million. The evidence of this operation is the North Korean diplomats themselves who have been arrested with wholesale quantities of drugs in over a dozen countries. One rumor even suggests that drug dealing is the primary source of the DPRK embassy budgets. The division employed an abundant supply of farmers who gathered mushrooms, poppies, and ginger. They also mined gold and transported the products from each region to the North Korean ports for shipping. One defector, a former truck driver who delivered refined heroin to the docks, spoke to Time magazine after his flight across the border. He said, We never asked questions. We thought we were showing our loyalty to Kim Jong-il. We thought he would use the money to improve our lives. But while his people were demonstrating their loyalty, Kim Jong-il was only concerned with augmenting his own fortunes, and his only loyalty was to his father and himself. 
The illegal income from Division 39 allowed him to continue his parties and lavish lifestyle even while his people worked long hours in the fields and languished in the gulags. Though Kim Jong-il was living the high life in a supposedly communist country, by the late 1980s, the rest of the communist experiment was in shambles. The guiding red star of communism, the Soviet Union, was in rapid decline. And to make matters worse, Kim Il-sung's health was failing. With a weakened leader and the end of Soviet support, the future of North Korea was in serious jeopardy. Coming up, North Korea emerges alone after the global collapse of communism. Now back to the story. By 1991, North Korea's aging great leader Kim Il-sung was preparing for chaos. His greatest ally, the Soviet Union, was dissolving into a series of fractured, violent revolutions. One of the communist leaders, Nikolai Ceausescu of Romania, had even been executed by partisans. Like the Soviet Union, North Korea's brand of communism had been rooted in Stalinism. Now the idea seemed defunct after the Soviet collapse. To reaffirm the country's commitment to Stalinism, Kim Il-sung called attention to his national ideology of self-reliance, or Juche. And in 1991, self-reliance meant self-defense. North Korea had lost its strongest ally in the USSR. Now they had no protection outside their own borders. Fearing his enemies would take the opportunity to strike, Kim Il-sung tasked his son Kim Jong-il with assembling the strongest army on the planet. Conscription became mandatory for all North Korean males between the ages of 17 and 25, and girls were drafted for support and maintenance positions. Draft registration took place at age 14, and the next three years were devoted to basic training. Each conscript received 300 hours of military training annually as part of the Red Guard Youth Program, including a week-long training camp in the summer. Approximately 650,000 teenagers were in the program at any given time. Deferment from the draft was possible for medical reasons, social standing, college attendance, or technical skills. The children of influential party members were also often excluded from the draft. Once enlisted, the young soldiers served a minimum of 11 years for men and seven years for women. North Korea quickly developed the most militarized population and the fourth largest standing army on Earth. One in three North Koreans was serving as a regular or reserve member of the military and the million army reservists were supported by another five million peasant workers classified as reserve Red Guards. Beyond their exorbitant manpower, the collapse of the Soviet military machine also provided plenty of weaponry and military vehicles for Kim Jong-il's growing forces. The numbers were staggering. The DPRK had more than 1,700 aircraft in its air force, 700 vessels in its navy, and over 6,600 tanks and armored vehicles. In terms of weaponry, North Korea had 18,000 pieces of artillery and 1,800 cruise missiles, along with countless supplies of rifles and machine guns. 
Kim Jong-il believed the greatest threat to North Korean security was South Korea, and more specifically, the desire for reunification. And if he believed it, so did his people. The cult of personality surrounding the Kim dynasty was stronger than ever after decades of propaganda. Kim Jong-il convinced the citizens that South Korea was poised to invade along the demarcation line at any given moment. He deployed over 70% of his forces to the DMZ, although there was almost no evidence of Southern aggression. While North Korea's $4 billion annual defense budget was less than half of what South Korea spent on their military, it represented a full third of North Korea's GDP. Kim Il-sung was committing every resource to national defense, and Kim Jong-il was the head of that defense. The terror of the looming war reached all the way up to the highest levels of the Communist Party, but it was their own commander-in-chief they were most afraid of. Several high-ranking officers were worried that Kim Jong-il was itching to use the forces at his command. They believed that reunification of the peninsula, a deeply held goal for many Koreans on both sides of the demarcation line, would be impossible under the trigger-happy Kim family. So, in 1991, they hatched a plan to assassinate both Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il. Some of Kim Il-sung's personal guards informed the conspirators that the Kims were planning to visit their ancestors' graves in a mountain village. The plan was to kill the Kims in the village and bring their bodies back to Pyongyang as proof. The rebellious officers believed that the rest of the loyal government would do anything to cover up the assassination of the Kims. So, in a misguided effort to ensure everyone knew the truth, the officers let the word out about their plan. And then the Kims skipped their mountain visit altogether. The plan collapsed, and the conspirators had already outed themselves. Kim Jong-il uncovered eight of the traitors and had seven of them executed. The eighth managed to escape to South Korea and lived to tell the story. With the traitors dead or else driven from the country, the Kim family's power was secure. And by December 1991, Kim Jong-il's ascension was nearly complete. That month, he was appointed Supreme Commander of the Army, a role that had belonged to his father until that moment. Then, after the final collapse of the USSR that year, Kim Jong-il issued a formal policy statement from the government under his own name. This was another first. Every official proclamation had previously been signed by Kim Il-sung. The statement was a simple reaffirmation of North Korea's commitment to communism. But more than anything, it was a warning sign to the international community. Kim Jong-il was establishing himself as a communist strongman, even if he would be leading the last Stalinist regime on Earth. He was also demonstrating to the world who would be in charge of his father's legacy. Just like his father, the mythology surrounding Kim Jong-il was enshrined in official North Korean lore. Tales of his alleged abilities were published in official biographies, engraved on public monuments, and even inserted into textbooks. The domestic cult of personality that Kim Il-sung had founded was now being passed on to his son 
and made even more ceremonious. Zhang Il claimed to be a revered horseman, riding at least five miles at a full 30-mile-per-hour gallop every day since childhood. He was also a gifted writer, allegedly having written 1,500 books in his three years at university, though only one ever materialized, and it was about cinema, his favorite subject. The fabrications sometimes verged on the ridiculous. Kim Jong-il was supposedly a golf prodigy, claiming that he once shot 11 holes in one on North Korea's only golf course before giving up the sport permanently. The average North Korean citizen knew more alleged facts about Kim Jong-il than some of their own family members. Of course, a citizen wasn't likely to be thrown in a labor camp for not honoring a distant cousin's birthday. The Zhang-il legends were like a security blanket for the population, giving them blind loyalty to a hero in anticipation of the moment when he would lead them. Then, in July of 1994, the moment arrived. On July 8th, Kim Il-sung was staying at a villa in the mountains not far from one of the nation's many nuclear silos. That afternoon, he collapsed from a massive heart attack. Kim Jong-il, who was never far from his father's side, ordered an emergency medical team brought by helicopter. But it was too late. The great leader was dead. Kim Jong-il was now the de facto leader of North Korea and the last follower of Stalin's communist ideals. His mysterious reign had finally begun. But so had a horrific famine. As Zhang Il was promising to care for his people just like his father did, domestic food supplies were running out, and the country was isolated from any imports by economic sanctions. North Korea could no longer feed itself. And no amount of military might could keep the people from starvation. All Kim Jong Il had was his persona and propaganda to keep his nation from ruin. He was about to face his first true test of power. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, we'll hear about the terrible famine that confronted Kim Jong-il in the first years of his reign. We'll also investigate the slow decline of the dear leader and his isolation from the rest of the world. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Dictators for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Dictators on Spotify, just open the app and type Dictators in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Dictators was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Billy Pace, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Dictators was written by Andrew Messer, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. <laughs>